0: Security! Security! A major security vulnerability will be found in someone's web application this week. Such vulnerabilities are so pervasive, in fact, that you can count on a nearly continuous stream of them. In web applications in particular, the rapidly changing development landscape has resulted in a lot of developers who don't completely understand how application breaches occur. In this episode, we're going to go over the most common examples to help you get a better grip on the kind of things that can go wrong on the web. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week?
1: Well, speaking of things going wrong on the web, I am in uh, web hosting purgatory it started last Tuesday when they said, hey, we're, you know, we're moving to this new setup, right? And I'm like, okay, cool. I'm getting a, new, I'm getting a, a C-panel that's been updated since um, you know George Bush was president. It's kind of nice, right? And I've been putting off a bunch of stuff because I knew this was coming. And they didn't tell me um, until like one of the lines I didn't really pay a whole lot of attention to in an email that they're actually physically moving servers. So it wasn't just update your DNS and a few other little things. It's like, no, we physically copied your stuff. So Tuesday that hits and I don't notice until Sunday and I go back in and I, and I move the DNS and developer launch pad is a month behind because we just only drop one post a month on there. And I'm looking at it, I'm like, what, what, what happened? And I realized, oh, this is the copy they made before the release. And so I'm like going back, you know, digging back through anyway, it's, it's a giant mess because we had about a week of productive effort on multiple sites that was on the old location and not on the new that's gotten moved. Then I was like fighting with SSL cert stuff. That's, you know, kicking and screaming going, Oh, this is invalid. You know, it's not secure, yada, yada. And then all of a sudden now that's working and I don't know what happened. (laughs) Um, and so I've got like, I've got this punch list of like 30 more items I've got to do to get everything where I actually want it to be. And I'm just thinking, man, if the rest of this is like this, I'm not, Really feeling it, <laughs> and I'm the only. One, I think I'm the only one that can do this right now, or I can set up user accounts, but that's more stuff to do. So I don't want to do that either. <laughs> so man, yeah, it's stuff on the web. So how about you?
0: Well, so we were recording today with a six-figure developer, which came out a few weeks before this episode did, and um, I was having some trouble with the uh, Zencaster because I didn't have a lot of space left on my on my solid state drive that I have my operating system and stuff on because Reaper stores all its temporary files on there and doesn't delete them like it should. This has happened before. So I just go in and I'm like, all right, well, delete, you know, 25, 30 gigabytes of data. Of course, it's so large, it can't send it to anywhere else. It just deletes it permanently. Go on about it. That that fixes the problem. Things work. Well, it's happened before. No big deal. Yeah. Well, apparently they did some kind of update or something. I'm not sure, but it changed it so that the wave files and the repeaks were not getting stored in the folder with the Reaper file the way that they had been doing. So we lost about four episodes that we're going to have to re-record. Yeah, um, I'm kind of right there with you on just frustration.
1: Yeah, when people move stuff and they don't like let you know hey this could be a potential major damaging breaking change Mm -hmm. it's really frustrating i've got an app on my phone that's giving me grief um because they updated it and like the login stopped working and so yeah and there was there was no warning and so i had to spend what 30 minutes you know cleaning that up uh, unexpected it's i you know i don't know man it's it's like some tech people really don't understand that there's other people in the world
0: yeah and it like the frustrating thing is i had set these settings to yeah we did the right things on all of our
1: stuff and we just still got burned
0: right and that's that's really what's what's very frustrating also i'm back on the maintenance team i think i've said that before but uh we had to do a few things that required me to learn some more pl sql and write some kind of complex stored procedures more updating them but still uh In better news, I am going to get to take some training on PL SQL and stuff. So that's that's kind of cool. Also, we were talking before this, we're looking at ordering some new swag for our booth at conferences this season. Uh, Though we're probably going to have more koozies, because those tend to be pretty popular. And definitely stickers. Everybody loves the stickers. And finally, in happier news, I got a new tea kettle. The whistle on my old one had stopped working. And this new one definitely works. It's nice. And it's TARDIS BLUE. Nice. Looks great sitting on the uh, back burner of my stove. Uh, I've been making a lot of tea since I got it. Speaking of that, I've got something tea related for IoTs. Let's see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> This week for IOTs, I have a product called the Smart Brew Automatic Tea Kettle. This electronic tea kettle has a 1.2 liter capacity. While not as classic as a stovetop kettle, it is fully programmable with settings for ideal temperature, brew time, and even an automatic start. Now, for the tea connoisseurs in the audience, it has two filter baskets to hold loose leafs or tea bags. It also has a pump function that lets you set the steep time and prevents leaves from just sitting in the water. It continuously pumps the water through the baskets to get the perfect steep. Finally, it has the ability to control the temperature and keep your tea warm without burning your tea leaves. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. Who's talking to us this week?
1: Well, we got an email about the CQRS episode from Tor Nastinius hoping I'm getting that right. I have no idea if I am. Um, It says, hi, just listened to your episode about CQRS, and you asked for pointers to complete CQRS solutions, and we have a starter kit, open source, at http uh, www.cqrs.nu, and it contains a sample CAFE example with full end-to-end implementation, including BDD testing. Check it out. P.S. Keep up the good work with the podcast. Best regards, Tor and That's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Tor. We definitely will check that out. Send us another email with your contact information because we've got a Complete Developer Water Bottle just for you. Guys, if you'd like your very own Complete Developer Water Bottle, leave us a review on iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all our episodes to Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Google+. We're also on Path, Instagram, and Tumblr. Check us out each week on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube Live where we talk about what's going on in the tech community and answer listener questions. You can join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com.
1: Have you ever wondered what it's like to record a podcast? Well, sit in the audience as we host a panel at Music City Tech that will later, through the magic of Beej's editing, become an episode. Meet us and the Junior Developer Toolbox crew at our booth and get some cool CDP swag.
0: Music City Tech is a three-day event, May 31st through June 2nd, consisting of simultaneous conferences, Music City Code, Music City Agile, and Music City Data, each focused on a particular community of technology professionals held at Vanderbilt University. Speaker selections have been finalized, and sessions can be found at sessions.musiccity.tech. Tickets are on sale now, and you can get those by going to completedeveloper.musiccitytech.com.
1: Web security vulnerabilities are expensive and massively destructive. They can result in identity theft, illegal content ending up on your server, or even having your machine be used to attack other people's computers. In addition, many of the worst vulnerabilities are not entirely obvious when you're trying to write code to actually accomplish something.
0: The Open Web Application Security Project or OWASP, as we'll be calling it throughout the rest of the episode, is a worldwide, not-for-profit organization focused on improving the security of software. OWASP issues software tools and knowledge-based documentation on application security. They put together a document containing the top 10 security vulnerabilities compiled through consensus of various security experts from around the world. The goal here is to spread awareness and help minimize these risks.
1: We're going to discuss the OWASP top 10 vulnerabilities and talk about what sort of things occur in these scenarios, how common they are, and how to mitigate them. The outline of vulnerabilities is largely taken from the OWASP website, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. But we did spend some time researching elsewhere. In addition, we'll talk about some of the things we've seen in the wild. This is not intended to be an exhaustive list of vulnerabilities, but it is a good starting point for understanding what's going on.
0: Yeah, I mean, the the goal here is to hit the most common ones. So the first one is injection.
1: Yes, and injection occurs when untrusted data is sent to an interpreter. Uh, the interpreter is then tricked into executing a hostile command. This can result in data corruption or in data access without the appropriate permissions.
0: Little Bobby Tables!
1: Yeah, one good example of this is SQL injection. He's you know he's referring to the was it Sinai and Happiness or was it uh, XKCD? XKCD comic um, about somebody that basically, you know, name their kids something that would crash a database. Yeah. Um, And that sort of thing can happen, right? When you fill in a, uh, a user form. Another example is LDAP injection, where it hits a lightweight directory access protocol, you know, those kind of things.
0: Essentially, these are situations where you enter data into a user interface, and then the data gets concatenated or otherwise placed into a command that is sent to the data source without scrubbing it or cleaning it.
1: Right. So, for instance, they put in text that has, you know, the character that starts a comment and then a character that ends a comment later on in some other field and they inject some other junk and then they start another comment and that Mm -hmm. runs. Um, That's kind of, it's a little more complicated than that, but that's how SQL injection attacks happen. And basically, to avoid this, you should never trust unsanitized user input, especially on the open web. But I would even say in a corporate environment, don't do Mm -hmm. this. Because um, you'd be surprised how often that ends up on the open web, or somebody goes, "Oh yeah, we can just expose this," and you know it's available through the firewall, and somebody's remoted in. Well, what happens now? Well, guess what? Your coworker that's working from home, their computer is now a node in your network, and it's hitting the internal stuff. So you know, don't assume that you have a firewall that's stopping everything.
0: One thing you can do here is to parameterize.
1: Yes, if you're able to
0: your your SQL. Uh, this is something that uh, a lot of ORMs. I know we both have had our issues with them, but it's one of the problems that they do solve. Yeah. Is they sanitize the data before they send it to.
1: Yeah. Um, and, you know, so there's parameterized strings and those kind of things. Uh, the other thing is, is a lot of times you can find libraries that will do the stuff for you. So, in other words, if you're talking to LDAP, you don't write your own, you use a third party library that cleans that stuff up.
0: What's LDAP?
1: Uh, Lightweight Directory Access Protocol. So it's kind of like Active Directory, but not, you know, Microsoft Tide, among other ah. things. Um, and so you're, you know, you're dealing with a lot of strings there because it's essentially a data source, right? If you're using a library, you're going to have function calls and you pass stuff in. And the library is responsible for sanitizing okay. versus you doing stuff at a lower level and, you know, actually talking back and forth to the data source.
0: Next is broken authentication. This occurs when an application incorrectly implements authentication or session management procedures to compromise things like passwords, keys, or session tokens.
1: Yeah, an example of this might be a reuse of stolen credentials. That's stuff like passwords. Um, so let's say that you're logged into a website, and or you're, you start to log in, and I have a keylogger on your machine. I get your password. I can log in from my machine. Do my thing. You obviously want to avoid this, and this is something that you learn pretty early, is i, I got to mitigate that to some degree. You should build features to check for weak passwords, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, limit the number of incorrect login attempts. So if somebody's, you somebody's know, just trying to have bulk it attack, force it. Yeah, then that, that doesn't get through. Um, and you can also go a bit further with this and implement multi-factor login. Mm-hmm. So when you try to log in, you get an SMS message with a code on your phone. So it's, it's something you know and something you have is essentially the way that works
0: which you know is, is very helpful, but also extremely annoying if you're a developer.
1: Yeah, because when you're <laughs> testing that stuff out, man, it's, you know, it's, it's horrendous. Now, as far as authentication, I've also seen a lot of stuff where people fail to a- authenticate or they don't think about the implications of what they're doing. Like, for instance, they've got a web app and then they write to a hidden field and they write the user ID to a hidden field and that field gets posted Back to the website, the website goes, oh, yeah, I'm going to impersonate a baby duck and just believe you when you say that you're mommy. And, you know, hey, they could change that with JavaScript before they posted it." it. You would be really unpleasantly surprised at how frequently I've seen that in software applications in my career where that kind of stuff is going on. So it's not just broken like they broke in, but like they're just ignoring it altogether sometimes. Uh, the next one is sensitive data exposure. And this occurs when an application doesn't correctly protect access to sensitive information. This allows data theft and or damage to the data on the system. Um, a real good example of this uh, would be kind of what we're trying to avoid with the SSL certs. We don't really have anything that sensitive, but you know, it's just kind of good practice to start start getting that.
0: We're trying to avoid getting docked by Google. Let's be honest yeah. with people. <laughs> well, that and people have asked for
1: it. And we're like, yeah, we should be doing that. Yeah, we really um, should. But the big deal here is you want to encrypt data in transit or while it's at rest in the server, especially if it's sensitive stuff.
0: So quick question um, about that. I was just thinking about it. Could it be that people are wanting to listen at work and their work won't allow them to go to sites that aren't?
1: Well, that'll that'll still be configured at the firewall, right? With HTTPS, Mm -hmm. they can still see where the traffic's going. They just can't sniff
0: into it. No, no. What I'm saying is, can they keep a keep someone from going to a site that isn't HTtPS?
1: Yes, okay, you can do that with policy because you just close off port 80 on the firewall. All
0: right, that makes perfect sense i i I thought it was possible, and that could be why people are asking for it is because they want to listen at work,
1: and well, that and everything's getting away from that, right? Yeah. Google is starting to now say, this is not secure, and it's not, and if you have a login you know, like a username and password, you get a big old warning for that now because they're not having that. So uh, the other thing you want to do is you want to encrypt data at rest. And this means that when you have stuff like PHI, you know, private health information, uh, financial data, those kind of things, when they are in your database server or on the file system, they have to be encrypted when they're sitting there on the disk. Think about what happens when somebody breaks in, they have a claw hammer, they threaten the, you know, the network administrator, the network administrator says, okay, these, these drives are hot swappable, here you go. And they leave and they fly to wherever before you catch them. What can they do with that data? Well, if it's unencrypted, they have it. If it's encrypted, they might still be able to break it, but it's, it's going be to be lot a lot harder. harder. Yeah. So you do have to encrypt data at rest. Now, there's a few interesting things that happen with the data at rest thing. Because guess what? SQL doesn't do a good job of when things are encrypted. You can't query encrypted, right? So there's a well, mechanism yeah, there for, you know, for dealing with that. Then SQL handles that. Under the hood, but a lot of a lot of systems that are dealing with like loose files and those kind of things that can be a problem. There's also encrypted file systems, but you do have to think about performance implications and what you're trying to do with that data. A lot of times, what you're actually trying to do with the data is something that doesn't really need that data. you just collected it, you need to not have it. The perfect encryption is non-existence um, and you know the big thing here is you know limiting the amount of sensitive data that you store, so you're not a big target, keep it protected, whether you're moving it or whether you're storing it, whatever. Um, Also think about that with backups, right? Like you don't want unencrypted data, you know, even if you think, okay, my, you know, inside my server room is secure when I make a backup and I take it off site, that has to be secure too.
0: The next one is XML external entities or XXE. Yeah. (laughs) XML processors can often reference external entities, which if those are compromised, can lead to all kinds of problems from disclosure of confidential data to denial of service and a lot of other nasty things like port scanning.
1: Yeah. um, And this is one that I have not personally seen in the wild. Mostly because most of the places I've worked with XML have been so sloppy with it. They haven't had data type definitions for it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and they weren't like doing, you know, they were using it as a serialization format very loosely. Um, so I guess I've been lucky on this. But um, essentially what happens is you can, you can set up your XML file um, with you know the document type datagram to, to point somewhere else for certain types of things. And when a document is processed, it'll go out and get those. From external sources, even across a network, the parser so, allows it. Now, most you don't run into
0: cores issue with that.
1: It's you have to have cores set up properly. Okay, um, but again, if it's a hacker and it's their server, they're going to have cores set up so you can totally get their poisoned resources, right? Well, yeah, yeah, I mean yeah. They're going to hand you that poison chalice. They're happy. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, yeah, I got gotcha. you.
1: Yeah. So what what happens then is the contents at the compromised location come back into your document. So let's say that you're able to damage a document that's going into a system and make it point at your resources. Then you can fill in chunks of data in that document appropriate to what is around it and do things like compromise passwords, those kind of things. Because you make the XML parser load up an object. And then when that object is processed bad things happen and it's processing in a different security context than when the document was created. That's the big thing with all this stuff is be very careful that what happens behind a security boundary is what is allowed behind a security boundary. And that if it's taking external input in any kind of way, that that's sanitized before you you cross the boundary. To prevent this, uh, usually the way they go for this is they um, they try to disable document type definitions. And that's basically to reduce the attack surface. In other words, to say, hey, because it's a major way that you reference stuff. Honestly, look for existing libraries that are safe against these problems instead of trying to implement your own. You wouldn't believe how many people I know that have written their own XML parsers. And they're like, oh, but mine's faster. Yeah, because yours isn't doing security checks and yours isn't. Handling malformed, you know, weird data things like that. This is stuff you push off onto professionals. It's, it's not just a string. But,
0: but they are professionals.
1: Right. And if they, you know, if they get busted on this, they get to be homeless professionals. <laughs> um, like, don't, don't screw around with this. This isn't, you know, like the, you're, you're trusting data that you should not be trusting probably.
0: The next one is broken access control. This occurs when an application doesn't strictly enforce constraints around what a user is allowed to do. Attackers can abuse failures in this to conduct operations for which they don't have permissions.
1: Yeah, an example of this might be an application that allows a user to edit data belonging to another user, either by mistake or just they didn't think about that.
0: You know, this is something, it's interesting, we've actually been talking about this where I work because... We're trying to move away from. We we're we're wanting to implement parameterized URLs, but when we started doing it, I pointed out, "Hey, you know, we're using the row ID, and so someone could come in and, and
1: increment it, and Yeah. so you still have to check them."
0: Right. So we're we're doing that, and then we we decided to go a step further and start using GUIDs instead. So yeah. that makes it even more
1: difficult to. I worked at a company here in town and that's what they like all their like their base entity class that they were using within Hibernate had a long integer ID
0: mm-hmm. and
1: then it had what they call the entity ID, which was a GUID. Um, and it was this, it was the same principle, right? Is they're like, this is what you expose on the web. You never expose the other one. Right. On the web. Of course, I'm like that. That's not so much a security thing as, okay, if somebody sees that big nasty GUID, they're not going to start. Poking there, it's just to be more annoying for them more than anything. Um, again, that's almost security by obscurity there, but you still have to check at the endpoint.
0: Yeah, and and that's that's the thing. We started with checking that you know the the logged in user because you have to be logged in to get to there that the logged in user had access to that particular data. Yeah, and then we added that on top of it to just sort of it's the the check is behind the scenes and you can't see it. The GUID is really ugly, and we called it uglifying the URL. When we did that, the the people that the business people were able to see it and go, "Oh, they they felt better about it." Right, because
1: let's say that you know that your user ID is five twenty seven. You know that that's probably auto incrementing, right? Somewhere, Uh so you know there's a user five twenty six. There might be a five twenty eight. So what you can do is you can scan, right? You start at one and you just loop. So this discourages that behavior too, because even if that behavior doesn't break into the system, it still pollutes the logs. If you're, if you're logging correctly. So somebody could do that while they're launching some other attack Mm -hmm. and you're going to go, Oh, it's just this crap again. Yeah. That was kind of our thought process. There is like, keep them from, keep down the log pollution as well.
0: I hadn't thought about it in that aspect.
1: Because that's what they'll do, right? It's like in martial arts where you throw a hand one way and then you punch them with the other one. It's that same thing.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. To address this, security constraints should deny by default, instead of allow by default. In addition, you should log access control violations and alert your administrators of the problem.
1: Right, and again, that's why we were doing what we were doing. Right, It's because the administrators were getting alerted, and we don't want to we, we don't want to desensitize them to an alert. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next one is security misconfiguration, and this occurs because of the misconfiguration of a system in some way that allows a malicious user to do something that shouldn't be allowed. Um, This can range from incorrectly configured access control to overly verbose error messages that expose sensitive data. Um, It can also refer to having an old version of software running that isn't caught up on patches. And a real good example of this might be something like the fairly recent breach of several thousand unsecured MongoDB databases that were sitting out on the open web with no password or where they have a default password. Yeah, and you know, I mean, there's WordPress sites that for a while there, I think they were they were defaulting passwords. Mm-hmm. You know, where people have like admin admin. Like that's a that's a security misconfiguration, right? It's not a vulnerability in WordPress. It's just you being dumb.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it
1: really is. I mean, it- but the thing is, is, is there's enough moving parts that everybody's stupid at some level. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, the thing is, even if you do have good security, yeah, you can still get hacked. It happened to us.
1: Yeah, ours was actually a different thing we're going to talk about later. Yeah,
0: but it's still, like, you, we had really good security, and it wasn't a default password or admin-admin or anything like that. Right. Oh, um, my um, guess This reminds me of high school. Again, like I said, I got in trouble a lot because I was trying to play video games in class. I learned about default passwords because of that. And I learned that the substitute teachers... Logged in as guest with no password. Yep. So I would just log in as a substitute teacher on the machine and play my video games because somebody kept them on there. Yeah. They were on the network. I don't know who put them on there. I, I, I have some theories on who put them on there. But, you know, I, I would do that until I got caught. <laughs> and then I found another one, default password. I'd yeah. use that till I got caught. I never had access to anything sensitive or anything like that. It was just like on that specific machine in the lab. I just, I would get bored in class and I would want to play video games.
1: Well, and you think about it like, I mean, this was in you know the mid to late 90s too, right? Yeah. That environment was totally more trusting than things are now. Oh, yeah. And so people did have default passwords. And i tell you something that'll burn a lot of people is the default passwords on routers.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, we've gone to the beach and... You get over there, and it's like, okay, well, I want to get on the wireless, and you got to call the front office. You can't get a hold of anybody, and you look, oh, hey, it's a Linksys, <laughs> Right? And I've done that and gotten the password. I mean, like, okay, here's the password. You know, that's not that unusual. Um, so, like, it, it's it, it's very common to have really bad security configurations, especially by default.
0: I went out yesterday to, uh, to do some grocery shopping. I stopped at uh, a pub down the road from... Uh from where you live that's right beside the grocery store i went in i was sitting there just you know it's a quiet place of mind and own business guy sits down beside me and starts talking to me and i'm kind of playing on my phone i was looking some stuff up and I think you and i were talking on hangouts He's like you come in here often i'm like yeah every now and then he's like yeah you know they've got wi-fi here I'm like oh really he's like yeah i think the password is 1234 or something like that and sure enough it's so like i asked the bartender when she comes back i'm like hey y'all have wi-fi she's like oh yeah password is one through nine yeah i'm like thanks
1: <laughs> Just, what you got to do is say that sounds like a combination an idiot would have on their luggage <laughs> and then look at the you know the blank look that they give you because they're a millennial that hadn't seen space balls <laughs> and didn't grow up on that yeah. <laughs> but yeah um and to mitigate this You want to make sure your machines stay patched and you need to carefully follow best practices. This is something that burns people with WordPress a lot is they, you know, they upload like they do an FTP upload from Windows and they put the files out there and they configure all their passwords and stuff. And it's just sitting there. It's not restricted from the outside world because they didn't you know, set the permissions right. Um, So definitely make sure things stay patched. Walk through the best practices instructions as far as securing things. Don't just go, oh, it's installed and it works like that. That's half of it. And just remember that not all software packages ship with sensible security defaults. In fact, a lot of them really don't still.
0: Speaking of sad but true, the next one is cross-site scripting, XSS.
1: Yeah. So this one's ugly, especially if you've got like content management systems, discussion boards, those kind of things. And this occurs when you include untrusted data in a web page for other users without proper validation or escaping. Uh, this can be as innocuous as allowing a user to put HTML tags in things that are seen by others, like the bold tag. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in the day, it was the blink tag.
0: And like <laughs> forums. Space.
1: Yeah, because, you know, people, like, they just were like, oh,
0: yeah, here, yeah, sure, you can put whatever, and it'll it just go in there, right? Yeah, I remember putting in, so you really didn't have WYSIWYG editors or Markdown, so you put your HTML in your comment. Yes. To do the stuff, and you could, you could put a scripts tag in there.
1: Yeah, and back then, it wasn't.
0: So, what do you mean by escaping?
1: Uh, like HTML encoding. So, if you have an angle bracket, yeah. ampersand LT, you know, uh, ampersand LT semicolon, uh-huh. right, that's escaping it. In other words, when that renders, it's not going to, go to be presented to their browser an HTML tag. It's going to be a less than symbol when it's yeah. shown on screen. But, you know, if you look at the code behind.
0: Okay, I follow you.
1: It, that's, it, it's basically that kind of stuff to, to keep this crap down. An example of this might be a forum on a banking site. Please, for the love of all that is holy, don't ever do this.
0: Forum on a banking site? If
1: some, if some idiot decides this is a good idea, like if some senior VP says that, just be like, we are going to get hacked to oblivion. And all of our users are going to get hacked, and we're going to be impoverished, and there might be a nuclear war. Don't ever do this. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's not quite that. Okay, there might not be a nuclear war, but everything up to that point, totally going to happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. okay. Um, basically, what happens there is a hostile user makes a post in the forum. Vice President of the Bank, blah blah is such a good guy, right? So he shares it to the rest of the inner circle at the bank. He includes a script tag in there. It's not sanitized. The script tag doesn't show visibly. Mr. VP goes, hey, look, Mr. President of the Bank, look at what this nice user said about me. Don't I deserve a raise? Mr. President of the Bank goes, huh, that's a really neat thing. Meanwhile, the script runs in the background. It has his user credentials. Well, if they've got a forum on a bank site, they're probably dumb enough to have all kinds of other sensitive things sitting out there. So it, hey, builds up a forum post, transfers $100 million to the Cayman Islands. You're done. (laughs) You're not going to the beach, but your money is. (laughs) Yeah.
0: You, You can do a lot of stuff
1: yeah and the big thing with this this is like uh SQL injection, but SQL injection is hitting your servers through an automated process. This is getting you can get social engineering in the mix here too, you know, so you can escalate privileges and leapfrog through other people's accounts and be harder to find and so this is why this gets used a lot, but it's a, you know it's it's whose machine it runs on does it run on the server? Or does it run on the client and get the client to do stuff yeah, yeah, and it's kind of almost a false distinction honestly,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and again, you want to mitigate this. Because you don't ever, ever trust raw input from an untrusted source and then display it in the browser.
0: So, how do you like sanitize it?
1: Uh, I mean, most most uh, frameworks have got libraries for that. You just go, you know, like HTML and code, right? And it'll take the string that's going in and, and say, here's your here's the HTMLized version. So if they did put tags in there, the tags, you know, will just show on screen instead of actually running, right? So a B tag would be. You know, literally uh, open bracket B, close bracket, whatever the text is.
0: Oh, but what if you what if you want to let your your users bold something?
1: <laughs> then you've got to whitelist tags, right? And you've got a, it's much more complicated processing. You can't just go, hey, dump it on there. Like that's fine if you want to do that, but you better pay the price for that because that is not free functionality whatsoever.
0: Well, this is why you you have like a, a WYSIWYG editor or something But, you know you you use Markdown or something to do it. I've noticed a lot of forums and stuff use markdown.
1: Yeah, and style. and that's the reason. Um that WYSIWYG editors in the browser are terrible because they're not they're not, not WYSIWYG or
0: Yeah,
1: it's uh W Y S I W T F actually is what they are. What you see is what the anyway <laughs> <laughs> since there's children listening. Um so the next one is Insecure deserialization. And so we'll talk about what serialization is first, because this is one that maybe people aren't familiar with. Serialization is the process of taking a structure in memory and converting it into a format that can be stored. Because in memory, it's going to have pointers going back between different pieces and all that kind of stuff. Whereas on disk, you just kind of want all the chunk together and you rehydrate it into memory. And deserialization is the process of pulling back off of storage you know, loading it up or pulling it off of a pipe. Like when somebody sends it in through HTTP, they send a payload in, we turn it into an object graph. Okay. Okay. And so that's everywhere on the web because basically that's what a post, what's happening there. It's also what's happening when when a query string is read and read into some structure. So this is a lot like the XXE vulnerability listed above. This vulnerability type abuses the way data is handled when deserialized by tampering with the data. This is why you don't write your own XML parser. This is also why you don't write your own JSON parser.
0: So it's basically XXE for JSON.
1: Yeah, or you can think of XXE as a subset of insecurity serialization just in general. Okay. Um, in the case of JSON, uh, they might, for instance, alter the user ID being sent in the payload in order to impersonate another user. They might inject uh, stuff that makes makes it into a comment. So it's sort of like SQL injection type stuff.
0: Why would you be sending your... Because people User are dumb. A D in your JSON that should be handled in like a token or a cookie or something.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I've seen it where they'll they'll send it in the JSON and they'll also put it. you will also have the the token and then they'll compare the two and then kick them out.
0: Now, now, that, and block
1: them when they do that. Right? That I've done. Yes. Um, but yeah, it's it's a really dumb practice. But you can do stuff to to tamper with a data structure and depending on how it's being read, like you're probably pretty safe in a managed language. But let's say that you wrote. And again, this is very, very spearfishy type attack. But let's say that you wrote a custom JSON parser. One of your coworkers knows about that, knows some vulnerabilities in the string handling library that was used under the hood. It was used something from 20 years ago. They malform a chunk of JSON and they post it to your server. It gets processed by your library and it does a buffer overflow on the string data in there. Like there's just all kinds of crap that can happen because you are crossing a security boundary and not sanitizing and you're not checking. Um, again, the best way to mitigate this is you don't trust user input. Um, that not only means not trusting the user when they tell you what their idea is, but stuff like enforcing uh, strict type constraints, you know, around what's being deserialized, using data integrity checks on the data sent over the wire. So you you go, okay, I, you know, I'm, I'm sending some chunk of data back, and I've got some way of doing a, like a CRC check, those kind of things, just to to make the barrier uh, more difficult. Log, yeah, log it when stuff breaks, log it, because that's, that's an indication that somebody's trying something. They're probably not going to get it right on the first, on the first go. So if they're Mm -hmm. starting, you know, if you're seeing a lot of those log error messages, that's, that's an indication that something's going on. Also, if you're running deserialization operations, consider doing it in an environment that's got uh, lower privileges. So for instance, you do the deserialization on the web. You, when it comes in, you deserialize it, you make your little object, right? That's clean then you serialize that and pass it over another pipe. Because there is anything funky in there, it's unlikely to make that jump, especially if you've done all the other checks and all the cleanup.
0: Right. Okay, I follow you there.
1: Yeah, and so I do this a lot. Like, I'll, um, I'll have a JSON payload, and I deserialize it into one object type, and then I use some library to actually move it over to the other type that's actually being used under the hood. So I just have an intermediate type that just makes it that much harder for crap to jump.
0: The next one is components with known vulnerabilities. Now, most people build web applications and make at least some use of third-party components and libraries.
1: Uh, Actually, they pretty much all do because, like, are you legitimately implementing, you know, a web server yourself? Okay, cool. You implemented a web server yourself. So, you're implementing HTTP yourself. Okay, cool. Are you implementing TCP yourself? Right. Like there's some level that you are going to use some uh, somebody else's stuff.
0: And this vulnerability type occurs when you use a component that has a vulnerability that is already known. Now, no, this doesn't mean known to you. It could also mean known to hostile forces, hostile governments somewhere, things like that. I mean, we've been seeing a lot of things coming out. Yeah, Uh, we got hit with one.
1: Yeah. Um, a while back, uh, this is a big this is a big issue in the WordPress community right now. Um, a lot of WordPress plugins have known and serious vulnerabilities in them, and if you don't patch, people detect that you're using it. They hack your site through mm-hmm. that. That's a you didn't build that component. You just plugged it in. In fact, you never wrote a line of code because WordPress has got this nice little package manager and all this other crap going with it. So it's there.
0: You know, the other thing here is these could like we've been seeing this a lot with. You know, the could grieve, even the, um, the chips.
1: Yeah, with like electronic components. Yeah. But, you know, back to the WordPress thing, the other thing that happens is, okay, the component maybe doesn't have a known vulnerability that's known to you, but you can have what's called a supply chain attack. And that's actually what hit us. Uh, we were using the Akismet uh, spam filtering mm-hmm. plugin. And either somebody breached their repository or they got bought out. Something happened. Mm. And I forget what it was. And it wasn't just them. There was was a couple
0: others right around the same time. They got bought. And the new. Was that the Akismet
1: or was that the other one that burned us?
0: The other one that burned us was the one that got bought. Akismet was. That's open source. source, Yeah, yeah, I think they got breached. The the other one, the company got bought. And it, well, I say company. They bought
1: the assets. They bought the the
0: assets from the individual
1: who had developed them and then they put a vulnerability in there and then shipped it out through the package manager and of course in WordPress it's like hey there's zero day vulnerabilities out there in plugins so when you get an update you freaking apply it well guess what you just ran that on your system uncritically right and you're you're basically torn between okay do i do i go into this lion cage to get away from the flesh eating zombies outside <laughs> yeah <laughs> welcome to wordpress <laughs> so true <laughs> yeah So, I mean, these are, these are just really nasty attacks. Now, um, the use of package managers, you know, like that's common, right? We use NuGet. We use, um, you know, we use NPM. We use, uh, you know, whatever. And I think that's something that's, that's maybe not been addressed as well as it should be. But yeah, that, that, that's how this happens. Um, and the big thing here is to stay on top of security advisories for the software that you're relying on. Also, just try to limit your use of third party libraries. Especially if they don't seem to do a real good, you know, real good job of patching their issues. So, like, if you look at even open source libraries, if you look at it and you go, "Hey, the last update was 2015. It's 2018 now. There's probably been something that's gone down. Besides the fact that, hey, you know, what happens when something breaks? Mm-hmm. Like, am I going to be able to get support? So you've got to make sure they have a reasonable patch cadence.
0: You really need to vet libraries before you use them. I mean, there's there's going to be some out there that you know are just known as good yeah. and vetted. But you know, if you're using something, for example, I mean even the the Oculus Mat, I went through and read So did I a lot of the stuff before we ever put that on our site. And I, I go through that with all of the plugins. You know, I don't put new stuff on there. I don't put stuff that just came out.
1: Yeah. Or it doesn't have many downloads or you know yeah. anything like that. And we we vetted and still got burned. So, you know, you really got to do. Yeah. And the only thing we could have done maybe was, was see the security advisory, which I mean, I look at those every morning and somehow just missed that one that, Hey, there's a problem. Although I think maybe they got in and they were in a lot of sites before people knew.
0: Well, the one that you sent me was the, the advisory about the one that got bought and then vulnerabilities got put in and that came out after. Yeah. It was update. in
1: everybody's site. Yeah. Yeah, and that's I mean it's just it's scary some of the mm-hmm. stuff that goes on out there, um especially with supply chain. Now here's something that that bugs me, um especially like with node and NuGet to a lesser extent, but node node seems like uh because it keeps separate copies. Yeah. You know, you got th- these are my dependencies, but if you have got another package that uses those, it's got a copy of it, so one might be updated and the other one isn't? I I wonder about supply chain attacks on the node ecosystem and what kind of mitigation strategies are in place. For that. I'm sure they're scrambling right now going, yeah, we got to fix this, right?
0: Yeah, I, I I wouldn't know. I mean, I think they've got some, but, you know, somebody could take down a left pad, yeah, blow up all sorts of websites.
1: Yeah. Or they could take it down and, you know, it's gone for a day or so. And then they put it back up with a vulnerability.
0: Yeah. And understand. everybody's
1: like, oh, crap. You know, now I got to catch up. So they're not going to be as critical in looking at what the patch does. Right. So, Very you true. can, you know, there's a social engineering aspect to this stuff, too.
0: Well, mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's what happened with the, the one that got bought because, you know, we didn't know that it had gotten bought. Yeah. It just came out with a patch and we kept, you know, we know we got to keep up to date. Yeah. So, the final one we're going to talk about and uh, number 10 on the list is insufficient logging and monitoring. This doesn't sound like a vulnerability, but insufficient logging and monitoring of your application can result in you failing to notice an attack while it's occurring. This makes it less likely that you will notice in time to mitigate the damage. It's really interesting that this is on here because it is something that... It's a soapbox that I've taken up at work is getting logging into everything. Same here. And partly because of this and partly because I'm just tired of spending hours trying to figure out why something broke in production, but I can't repeat it in test or dev. So I can go look at the logs and see exactly what they did.
1: Yeah. And you can watch all the steps all the way through. Mm-hmm. Plus you can, you can test things faster right. because you're not having to attach a debugger and deal with all the, mm-hmm. all the stuff that's going on. Um, yeah. The main thing with a log is it's like catching the burglar at the front door instead of when they're on their way out of the safe. Right like it's you know it's it's just general uh situational awareness.,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, so logging has led me into the application monitoring side of things, and uh, I had a meeting about a week or two ago with our executive director and our software architect talking about w- how we could implement monitoring for our applications and keep up with app health and see when these kind of things were happening. Not just when something goes wrong, but, you know, hey, is someone using the system inappropriately or how is it being used and things like that? It's, it's kind of funny that, like, the wanting to avoid pain in debugging led me to logging, which led me to application monitoring, which led me to better security for our all of our applications.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know if you've ever looked through, like, a production... Web server log. Well, it's probably not as bad now as it used to be because back in the day, they, they expected SQL injection vulnerabilities and stuff like that mm-hmm. everywhere. And so you'd see all these post requests that had attempted SQL injection happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, like it was all over the place. And you would look in your web server logs and there's all these you know massive attacks going on and you have no idea. You know, If you're not looking at the logs, you don't know. And and so you really you really do want to have things set up where you're aware. The other thing is, is if let's say that one of your apps gets hacked and that app touches some other sensitive resource, like it's I don't know maybe it sends emails. Part of it you know sends a you know special email, but you can customize pieces of that email. Well, they could do a twofer and basically push bad emails out, and they could spam people using your Mailchimp account, so your deliverability goes in the toilet. A bunch of your people on your list get spammed and you don't really see that until you see the spike in connections to MailChimp. You go, what's going on there? Right. So it's it's notification of a breach and notification of attempted breaches. Another example might be something like the login system being under attack. You know, if somebody's constantly trying, I mean, we have that on our website, right? There's certain usernames that if you try them, your IP address gets blocked. I've got that set up. Um, there's a few other things that you can do that will really cause you a bad hair day as well. Um, we'll leave those alone so people don't go trying them. <laughs> but you want to record incorrect authentication attempts, lock accounts out, you know, warn people, that kind of stuff. You just, you just want to be aware of what's going on. Um, and the big thing is to treat logging as a first-class citizen in your development environment. It's one of your deliverables. That's like mm-hmm. going, oh... Yeah, we build the code, but we don't really install it or configure it or do any logging or. However, with that, you don't want
0: logging to take down your application.
1: Yes. And this is one that I've seen that's been very interesting. It's like people will, uh, just completely crap flood the logs. Like that's not, that's not good logging. I've seen apps that are services that do, you know, they do a loop, right? And they'll hit the database and they go, okay, are there any new things for me to do? which the whole polling model is not ideal anyway, but it's all over the place. Okay, there's not any. Let me write an entry to the log. Loop again. Got any new stuff? It's like a kid going to the beach. We there yet? We there yet? And it writes the Windows event log. Fills up the event log. Server admin goes, hey, there's something funky going on on this box. They can't tell that something else on the box is under attack because you have flooded the logs. So you do have to be careful about that. Um, mm-hmm. Another thing that'll burn you is is homebrewed logging frameworks like this is a pet peeve of mine i don't ever want to see that crap because those people that write those they go oh i'm writing to a file that's not what you're doing and so they'll go they'll do things like uh open exclusive lock on a log file which means that okay cool but if i have five instances of the app running and it's the same log file and one of them has an exclusive lock do you know what happens to the others that are writing to the log While they're executing, they crash. Yeah. Because who puts try-catches around logging statements? Very, very few people do that. (laughs) Um, And it's it's hard to remember to do consistently because that's not something you think about failing.
0: Uh, Unless you've had it happen to you. Yeah. So that's some of the things you have to take into account with logs. Having logs for administrators is as important as having a UI for the user.
1: Well, it is the UI for the administrator. It really is, yeah. And if you have a UI for another programmer, we call that console Mm -hmm. commands.
0: Like, uh, our executive director has all sorts of plans for what to do with the information that she is able to get because of the logging that I implemented into our applications. Yeah,
1: it's a really big deal.
0: I didn't realize how big of a deal it was because for me, it was, I don't want to have to spend three to four hours figuring out what's going on when I could spend three to four minutes looking at a log file.
1: And I can do control F and find that exact exception that they said they saw and I exactly. can exactly follow the correlation IDs back. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. It's like for me, it was make my job easier as a developer. Yeah. And the more I got into it, the more I realized how useful and how important logging is to the overall business structure. It, it of sounds like an ivory tower approach but it'll make your application easier to debug and monitor if you do this saving more than enough time to pay for itself and trust it'll, me guys it'll let
1: you take a vacation too without you getting a phone call
0: oh yeah like i i showed our front end developer how to look up api errors and now rather than pestering me in slack he'll look up the error and then if it's something that is an api issue He'll come to me with it and be like, hey, you know, this is the error that is in the logs and I'll go look at it and I'll find the stack trace and I'll, I'll follow it down. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things that it has made my job so much better. And it, it's such a simple thing to do to make your job so much better. Like it, it took me, you know, probably about a day, half day to set up. And, you know, then I have to remember to to wrap my stuff for the logger. But the amount of time that I have saved just by doing that is so incredible. Guys, these are the current OWASP top 10, and they do change. They move up and down. I know that they're different from the previous. Um, Some moved up and down, some new ones, some went away. But, y'all, security's hard, and it really is a field all by itself. A lot of developers have made terrible security decisions and created tremendous amounts of damage, and a lot of them are going to continue to do so. If you learn just a little bit about some of the basic attacks and how they work, you're far more likely to build a secure application than someone who doesn't know anything. This episode was a high-level discussion of some of the very basic things about these types of attacks. And you should spend some time learning more about these if you want your code to be secure at all. Uh, Basically, if your code isn't completely composed of hello world samples on GitHub, you want to secure your code. That pretty much wraps us up. Before we close everything out, Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade?
1: Something any writing teacher will teach you um, is to consider your audience. And that's not any different in code. We like to think that our end users, uh, the people that are touching the user interface of our app, are the only people that you're writing for. And I really think that couldn't be further from the truth. Yes, that's important. You've got to have a good user experience. However, you know, we talked about the whole logging thing. The admins and the people, you know, the DevOps people that are monitoring your stuff, they're an audience. Um, the way you write your installers, they have to be written for a particular audience. And that audience is not the same as necessarily the people that are monitoring the app. Often it's a completely different department. You need to make your app useful to them. Uh, The same thing needs to happen when you're uh, creating command line interfaces. You write that for the people that might be scripting stuff. You build it in such a way that it's actually usable. Uh, Your source code itself needs to be written uh, with an eye towards what other developers are going to experience when they're reading your source code. These audiences may overlap, they may not, but you need to be aware that you have more than one all the time when you're working on code and just be careful about using the wrong tone with the wrong audience you know writing stuff for the devops people that is really written for another developer because you'll confuse them and you'll make everything harder both on you and on them so that's what i got If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed
0: through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about
1: all of our shows and groups by going to completedevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.